morning. If you'll turn with me to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. I'll be reading verses uh, 1 through 5 out of the ESV. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as his hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. Let's pray. Lord, whether we're here today hearing the word for the first time or have heard it for a thousand times, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us clearly, that you would give us wisdom and convict us of sin. I pray that our ears would be open and our hearts would be open to you, Lord. I pray that we would never grow callous to the hearing of your word or through the moving of your spirit. I pray for this church body, Lord, that you would protect them. I pray that you would bless them and that they would know how much you love them. Lord, I'm thankful to be able to pray and read your word and hear the teaching of today's message. And I just pray that you would bless our pastor as he delivers this word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Um, Just so you know... Last week, if you were here with us, you already do know this. If you were not with us, then you missed it. But we actually prayed off the Ecuador team. And uh, on fr- actually, just on Friday, we actually came back here and prayed for them, sent them off. To- I'm happy to say that they are on the ground safely uh, at the destination. It's been like quite a few plane rides and a lot of hours and, you know, between things, they got to go to the actual equator, um, and so. But they are on the ground. Pastor Tom was preaching this morning at one of the local churches, and uh, they are eager to hit the ground running with uh, all the the expected um, projects that they have uh, in store for them. And so, I just want to give a report about that. They are doing very well. Even the littles are doing extremely well, and uh, so we we praise God for that. Who knows? I mean, that was probably the biggest uh, weight that Pastor Tom was experiencing. Or expressing to me before he left. He was just like, man, we just kind of got to get there, you know? We just got to get to Seattle at this point, you know? So multiple benchmarks have been reached already, and God has been gracious in that process. And so have you guys tried to move hurt? John, I know you like heard lots of cats back in your day and stuff. I mean, it was just like, it was any wonder that they all kind of came back halfway alive, right? You know? And so it's just like, you know, to, to bring a whole bunch of people, especially down to Ecuador, and you're like, let's see what happens. You know, the fact is, this is going to be glorious, and uh, we'll continue to give updates as as they are given to us. And I know Dewey Doolittle, he's sending uh, constantly re- constant reports and pictures and stuff already, too, so that's been really exciting. Um, I also shared with you last Sunday that this Sunday we will be starting a new series and that new series is really the attributes of God. Uh, this series is actually going to take us all the way to Advent, which starts basically in December. And so, uh, so we're going to be in this series for a while. And you might be wondering to yourself, wow, that seemed like a long time to be preaching through one series. I'm thinking, at least as far as I can tell up to this point, it's going to feel very short. 
And the reason why I say that is because when we think or consider the attributes of God, it is uh, something that, uh, let me just put it this way, the intent, the hope, and the prayer is that your theological box and your paradigm would be so blown open that your worship of God would be would come much easier. Not because you have all the right words to say, but by, that, but by the mere or sheer fact that you are undone by the awesomeness of God. In my own reading and in my own personal study, even resources that I have read prior to this, uh, kind of preparing for this series, even new sources that I'm coming uh, into better grips with right now, I'll be honest with you, I am, uh, well... How should I say this? I feel like I'm starting all over again. Not because I don't know things about God. Not because I don't have a, a, a healthy relationship with God. But I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I feel like I'm starting all over again going, oh, I don't really know God like I thought I did. And by the end of this series, we will all together with one voice say, we still don't know God like we want to. Not because he's not knowable. Not because he doesn't make himself, that, that, that is, because he doesn't reveal himself, but because he is incomprehensible. And so my prayer and hope for this series is that we would walk away, that our, our paradox, our, our paradigms would be so blasted open that we would become, that we would actually be, uh, uh, comfortable with paradoxes. Do you know what I mean by biblical or theological paradoxes? What I mean is that you're like, how is this true and how is this also true at the same time? You have to almost pick one side or the other and you can actually go, no, they're both true. How does man's free will and God's sovereign choice, how is that even compatible? And you go, because God is God and he is incomprehensible. And our minds are finite. And so let me ask you a question as we kind of launch out in the beginning. And by the way, this morning is going to be more of an introductory sermon to this whole series. So I'm not going to be jumping into any one single attribute this morning, but I'm just kind of going to, I'm going to set the ground rules, so to speak, of how we're going to go about approaching this series together. But let me do so by asking a question. What comes to your mind... Or what images come to your mind when you think about God? What comes to your mind or what image comes to your mind when you think about God? Or when you think about who he is? Just take a second. What comes to your mind? Perhaps what comes to your mind... When you have a brief margin or moment to just pause and be still, is it's maybe that uh, maybe you have a certain image in your mind, right? You think of God in a certain way, um, or you envision Him in a certain place, perhaps, or perhaps you're when you think about God or the idea of God. You have certain components, but you don't maybe, maybe you don't quite understand them in the way that you would hope to or wish you could. Uh, maybe you, your image of God is that he is a loving God. Maybe your understanding of God is that he's a wrathful God. 
Perhaps some of you might think that uh, I, when I think of God, I, he, I just think of a, a, a person or a, an angelic being who's near and present to me. Perhaps if I, think, I think of a supernatural being who is distant and unavailable. Maybe your image or thought of God is he's much like us, but with a kind of superhero abilities, like us but better than us. A.W. Tozer, and this isn't the first time we've quoted this, but A.W. Tozer has been quoted this many times, but it's still very appropriate for us this morning. He says this, What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, and here's why. Tozer goes on to say that we tend, some kind of like by the secret law of the soul, we tend to gravitate or move toward our mental image of God. In other words, how you view yourself, how you relate to others, how you perceive the future, how you pray, how often you pray, how you confess your sin, how often you confess your sin, how you view your sin, how you pursue God is all rooted in your mental perception or understanding of God. But here's the deal. We're all off. Every single one of us in this room is off. We all have a distorted view of God. Every single one of us has a distorted picture of who God really is. It doesn't mean that everything we think about God is wrong, but none of us have arrived by any sense of the word. We all have a, a distortion about God because we have not yet fully understand who he is. In fact, many of us have a, an understanding of God or a, a picture of God in our minds based on what we've adopted by the, maybe the culture in which we inhabit or, or the movies that we have seen or by what our parents taught us or by what peers and teachers have passed on to us. But we're all off to some degree. Here's another thing that we need to understand. Every one of us has adopted a perspective of God that is too small. Have you ever looked through the wrong end of a binoculars? (laughs) My kids do that all the time. And they're like, hi, Dad! And I'm right in front of them. I think theologically speaking, we all, all are looking through the wrong end of the binoculars And God is really small when he's actually very large. Most of us have a domesticated God who is more manageable and controllable, at least on our terms. For example, many people want a God that bows to their perception of reality or or at least one who goes along with their pursuit of life and happiness as they deem fit. And even if you're not sure what you think about God, perhaps you're kind of like, I don't really even know. I mean, when I think about this idea of God or even God himself, I struggle to have some sort of picture in my mind. Even if you're uncertain, even that uncertainty impacts you. 
Even your uncertainty influences every aspect of your life. I appreciate what Tozer said elsewhere in another resource. He said, Christianity at any given time is strong or weak depending, depending upon her perception or concept of God. Again, the strength of your faith or the weakness of your faith is bound and determined by your concept of who God really is. I know personally speaking, uh, on one hand, I am incredibly grateful for the the legacy and the intentionality that my parents established even uh, for me as a child and with my siblings. I mean, family worship was normal in our home. We were, we regularly devoted ourselves to the church. My parents were both involved. We all, you know, just kind of serving the church was normal. It was part and parcel to walking with Jesus, to being a Christian. And, uh, and we had family devotions all the time. And, and we, I was a part of Awana memorizing verses and all these kind of things. But even with all that incredible outpouring and intentionality that did not make me immune from having a distorted relationship with God because of my distorted perception of God. You see, even, with the, even though I had parents that loved me in Jesus Christ, I still had a fallen flesh. And my fallen flesh had a unique Actually, it wasn't unique at all uh, because I know many of us and you're probably struggling the same way. But my fallenness expressed itself in this way. God loves me for what I do, not for who I am. Can anybody relate? God loves me for what I do, not for who I am. And because I, and even though I knew that I could not argue that biblically, even though I knew that was scripturally wrong, it did not, it it, it was still a struggle to not believe it. And because of this distorted view of God, it radically influenced how I related to God. You might call this, I had pharisaical tendencies or a pharisaical relationship with God, thinking that for somehow if I was obedient to God, then God would bless my life. That God loved me and would bless me so long as I followed the rules better than most people. I believe that God was happy with me and that when I was good and that he was angry with me when I was disobedient. And therefore, blessing in my life was all determined on my performance. As a result... From a very young age, my walk of faith has always struggled to believe and therefore receive and accept and to soak in the love of God. It's not because it hasn't been available. It just means that I have not yet arrived, even as a child and even at this point in time in my life today. I continue to understand and grow and, and believe, oh, God loves me. Jesus loves me. This I know. And I'm believing that more and more as I grow in Christ. You know, that may not be your issue. 
Perhaps your distortion is to think of God as a cosmic vending machine whose sole purpose is to love you in in spite of your choices and to give you what you want, to make your life happy as you define happiness. But regardless of your perception or my perception of God, the fact is we're all off to some degree. We all have a distorted perspective of God to some degree. And because of this, And the reason for this is because, as was already said, God is incomprehensible. Yes, he is knowable, but he's at the same time incomprehensible. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. He says, right now we see in a mirror dimly, but then or soon in eternity we will see face to face. He says, right now I know in part, but then, again, in eternity, I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Even Paul the Apostle acknowledges the fact that in this life, in this earthly body, this corruptible body, he can only know in part. He cannot know fully until he receives his incorruptible body in the presence of Jesus. And so I'm convinced, and I hope that you become convinced as we go through this series, I'm convinced that the most important journey that you and I will ever embark on together is to understand more fully who God is, especially as he reveals himself through Scripture. I believe that to to understand God and to know him is the greatest service we can do for our lives and our souls. Now, there's a point of clarity I want to kind of bring to this. My goal here, and I hope you don't walk away with it thinking this, my goal is that you wouldn't walk away going, oh, now I have more facts about God in my mind. I could pass biblical jeopardy or something, you know? It's like, it's like I can share all kinds of things, regurgitate all kinds of known facts and figures about. That's not the goal at all, though that may be implicitly gained, No, the purpose of our study of God, in the words of J.I. Packer, is that we would be led to God. That we would be led into the presence in the throne room of God. And that that we would, in turn, each learn more about God for the sake of deeper meditation after God. And as Packer would go on to say, that our prayer and our praise of God would continue to grow. After all, the fact is, you and I were created to know God. Intrinsic to your design of creation is to know God. That's what it means to be an image bearer of God. God wants you to know him. He reveals himself that you might know him. But in order to, to, to really know God, we've got to kind of lay some ground rules here for our, our attribute series, okay? We've got to lay some ground rules because there are certain uh, kind of foundations that need to be, that, this, uh, that our kind of understanding and knowledge and, and, and relationship with God are going to grow on, okay? And so the first ground rule is this, and I think I already skipped one slide here. Here's our first rule. Thank you. God is not like you. Shocking, I know. 
We must come to grips with the fact God is not like you. You know, most of us in here would probably agree with that. I know God's not like me. But we might actually agree wrongly because we may think that God is just a better version of me, right? Remember what I alluded to a little bit earlier. Sometimes we have this idea or mental image of God is like, God is like human but superhuman. You know, he's like us but has just more abilities, right? Superman, right? He walks like us, talks like us, kind of blends in with us, but he has these incredible abilities. But that's not true. And we might even think that because even in Genesis 1, right, we're created in the image of God and we know what we look like, so God must look like something similar. And so we try to put some sort of object or something to think of when we think about God, but we must understand that God is nothing like us. We are image bearers, yes, but that doesn't mean we are the same by any stretch. I love what Isaiah, what God says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40. Listen to this or read along with me. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Asked the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. O Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? O Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. Or listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 11. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. Who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? Rhetorical question. And who has given him so much that he needs to be, to be paid back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. The fact that God is holy by default separates him from all his creation. The fact that God is holy and perfect distinguishes him from all creation. He's not just a better version of us. He is is a totally different class altogether. He's in a class of his own. And yet how easy or common it can be for people to reduce God in terms that we like. To put God in a theological box, so to speak. To, to, To make God more palatable or comfortable. And this brings us to our Second rule, left to ourselves, we tend to reduce God to manageable terms. Left to ourselves, you and I have the propensity, the ability, and many people are actively doing this, reducing God to manageable terms. I mean, how common it is for people, even, even Christians, yes, to reduce God and, uh, to a God that we can control, to, to a God that we can manipulate, uh, to a God that we can tame, to a God that we can domesticate. Even Paul acknowledges this in Romans chapter 1. 
when he says this, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. You remember that scene in Exodus chapter 32 where the people of Israel are camped out by Mount Sinai, right? Do you remember that? God has already called Moses. In fact, he even said to Moses, here's a sign that I am the one calling you to do what you're about to do, that you will be back here worshiping at this mountain. So here, here he is fulfilling. He's like, oh, God promised this would happen. This is confirmation. This is affirmation that what was going, that's what's going on here is actually of God and for God. And so then we see Moses, he goes up on Mount Sinai, right? And he just disappears, Their fearless leader disappears. And guess what? What do we oftentimes do when our fearless leader disappears? We get desperate. We get restless. We get agitated. We don't do well aside from leadership. And so Moses is on the mountain. People don't know when he's coming back. They've been led miraculously up to this point. And now all of a sudden, like Moses has gone Maybe he's dead. People start going to all kinds of conclusions. And then, of course, Aaron's starting to feel the weight and the pressure of this as the priest. And he's like, oh, you got to do something. Here. I got I to please the people. I got to make something happen here. And so what does he do? He says, give me all your gold rings, earrings, everything else. And you know what he does? Long story short, he fashions a golden calf. And they worship a golden calf. Now, it's important that we understand what is actually transpiring here. Because we should not interpret what Israel wasn't, what they were not doing was that they weren't looking for a different God. No, they were seeking to worship the one true God on their terms. They fashioned a God that was familiar to them, a God that would represent something even honorable in their mind and heart. They were seeking to worship Jehovah God but in, in a pagan fashion on their terms with what they knew. It's the same reason why Cain in Genesis chapter 4, why his offering was not acceptable to God. Cain was not worshiping a different God. He was worshiping or seeking to bring an offering to the one true God, but on his terms. And therefore God rejected it. You see, what Israel was guilty of in Exodus chapter 32 was not that they parted ways and said, I don't believe in this God anymore, and they adopted another pagan God of 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 the Egyptians or something. No, they sought to worship God on their terms. It kind of begs the question for you and I, am I in the practicing, uh, am I in the practice of worshiping God on my terms or his terms. And how would I know? Now I know you, pro- you and I are probably not in the habit, at least culturally speaking, we're not in the habit. It's not custom to have little figurines on your mantle that you worship, 
little idols, little images, or whatever else. But the fact is, you and I are all guilty and have a temptation or propensity to worship idols. What is an idol? An idol is anything that takes equal or greater priority than God. Let me just say that again. An idol is anything that takes equal or greater priority than God. That's why almost anything in life can be an idol. Kids can be an idol. Sports can be an idol. Your house can be an idol. Money can be an idol. Security or success can be an idol. Education can be an idol. Recreation can be an idol. Talking to Phil Coyster down in Bend, Oregon and stuff, he says one of the biggest issues that he has down in Bend, Oregon is that people worship nature, literally and figuratively. They love recreation. They love to explore. Nothing wrong with recreation at all. It's just they live for it. Recreation has an, not just equal, but has greater priority than anything else in life. What is it for you? Now, I'm not going to go through, I'm not going to start asking you to raise your hands and tell me necessarily, but, um, but I think there are a couple of idols that I would like to identify that I think we can all relate to or have a vulnerability to. One idol that is common to all of us is the idol of happiness and self-fulfillment. Anybody like to be happy in here? Right? No, that's actually a God-given desire, by the way. Happiness is a God-given desire. Did you know that God wants you to be happy? Because if you don't, that discloses a distortion of God right then and there. But God actually wants you to be happy. Happiness is, is part and parcel to, to being in relationship with God. He says, I've come that your joy might, my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. God wants you to have fullness of life, the abundant life. He wants you to be happy. The problem is, is what, what happens is when we kind of idolatrize it, is that even a word? I'm going to verbalize that. Uh, we're going to make an idol out of it, and we're going to go, happiness is my ultimate gain, not with God, but in the absence of God. And so we all of a sudden start pursuing happiness on our terms. Here we go again. Once we start doing things on our terms, we start falling away from God's terms. And we start thinking that I am responsible for my own happiness. And what happens oftentimes in our relationship with God is that we, we adopt this, this idea that we might coin as Christian karma, right? Where for some reason, like, God is, you know, I want to be happy, and I want a self-fulfilled life, and God is going to provide that for me, so if I scratch God's back, he'll scratch mine, right? If I do the right thing, God will bless me in my life. God will give me what I want. If I'm good, and I'm careful, and I'm obedient, then God will bless my life as I deem fit. And while on one hand, Scripture does teach this fact that we do reap what we sow and that there is great joy in our obedience, it does not make us immune, however, to the fallenness of the world that we live in. Remember the sobering theme of Ecclesiastes a few years back, right? Proverbs is all about if-then statements, If you live this way, then this is kind of what you can expect. And then Ecclesiastes kind of 
fills in all those gaps and says, yeah, but that's not actually true all the time. In other words, you can live a righteous life and you can be obedient to God and you can be upright and still die young and experience a life of hardship. So who wants to go through Ecclesiastes again? (laughs) Who's with me? No, it's just a sobering take on reality. Because so often we want to be in control and we go like, oh, what's, what's the formula here? What's the mathematic formula? How do I relate to God? If I do this, then I, can, then I get assured of that. And God's like, no, that's not how it works. You can live a perfect life short of Jesus and everything go disastrous for you. Not because God hates you. Not because God doesn't want to bless you. It's just not a biblical promise that everything will go the way in which you deem best. Here's the deal. If happiness and self-fulfillment are your ultimate goal in life, then you may eventually become angry and disappointed with God because ultimately you're going to feel let down. Because you're going to think he hasn't blessed you with your best life now. At least the life you had hoped to experience. You know, I, just this past week, and this is, not, this is sort of on topic, but kind of off topic, um, we're going through a Sabbath series right now, uh, a group of us in here at the Carey's house, and, and uh, so we're listening to some podcasts throughout the week about Sabbath, and John Mark Comer said this uh, in regards to contentment, which I thought was, I'm still chewing on it, so I'll just relay it to you. He says this, contentment is being grateful for what you already have. Contentment is being grateful for what you already have. In other words, you will never be content until you are first grateful for what you have, not what you don't have. As I think about that, when I think about a life of happiness and self-fulfillment, and oftentimes I'm not happy or as happy as I could be or should be or want to be because I'm not yet, I've not yet acquired what I think will make me happy, Right? And so discontentment is the desire for more. But contentment is being grateful for what you already have, giving thanks to God. You know, my kids oftentimes, they're content only when they have as much, but more than likely more than what their siblings have. Are your kids any different than my kids? They're like, and, and what happens when you start divvying up food portions and stuff? Well, so-and-so got more than me. And I can't be happy until I get at least as much, but yes, definitely more than them. Then I'm happy, right? I think a second idol that we can all struggle with is the idol of you. Chip Ingram calls it this. He calls it the salad bar approach to Christianity. And in this approach, people feel liberty to kind of pick and choose what they want to believe and what they want to follow uh, from the Bible and, and really leave the rest because in the end, you are the boss. In the end, you decide what is right and wrong and what is true and not true. Uh, I used to have a, when I worked on the pipeline in Alaska, one of the coworkers who was a professing believer, um, this was kind of a, a probably textbook example of that where as we would get into theological or spiritual conversations, I was surprised or shocked. I was like, wow, you kind of pick and choose what you 
like and don't like in the scriptures. In other words, you want to sleep with your boyfriend, so therefore you just kind of eliminate all the scriptures that talk about you know, fidelity and, and uh, maybe marriage and all these kind of things or doing things in, you know, in God's way. And, uh, but, but, but you like other aspects of God. And, and she even went go so far to say, which by the way, this will also equally blow all our paradigm, but it's like, I just don't understand the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is so different than the God of the New Testament. So I love the God of the New Testament, but not the God of the Old Testament as if it was two different gods. Now, grant you, I understand the tension because guess what? It seems like through a very elementary approach to the Old Testament, like, well, God seems kind of wrathful and judgmental and and New Testament's all about love and grace and mercy. And guess what? The God, the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's He's not a different God. He has eternally been loving. He's eternally been gracious. He's eternally been merciful. He's been eternally steadfast. Look how patient he has been with his people. They just fashioned a golden image at Mount Sinai when God was about, when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. Look how patient he is with his people. See how patient he is with us. But if we get into the habit of, and, and, and adopt this idea that I'm the boss and I ultimately choose what's right and wrong, then we... We get into dangerous territory and we start redefining everything based on what we want or don't want. We decide how much we want, how we want to spend our money. We decide, decide how we want to spend our time. We decide how we're going to live our life on our terms, not God's. We, de- we decide what sexuality ought to be and gender and everything else. All of a sudden, it's up to us to decide, not God. The idol of you. And the irony of this idol for Christians is that we can profess right doctrine. We can profess and know right theology, but we can, without even realizing it at times, live a life that is not consistent with what we profess. In other words, we can acknowledge that life is all about God and His glory. But in reality, if we're honest with ourselves, many aspects of our life may have, do, have more to do with us than with God and his glory. So what did we say? Rule number one, God is not like you. The second rule is we, we tend to reduce God to manageable terms. But the third rule is this, God can only be known as he reveals himself to us. Scripture tells us that God is incomprehensible, that he is unsearchable. Listen to what David says in Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. What did Paul say in Romans 11 again? Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways I love how Matthew Barrett kind of rightly affirms in his book called None Greater. He says, God cannot be comprehended, but he can be apprehended. 
He is incomprehensible, but he is apprehendable. In other words, he is knowable. And the reason why we can know God at all and in any way is because our creator communicates by means of words and works. And this is how he's done it. He's communicated. He's revealed himself through nature. He's revealed himself through the Bible. And he's revealed himself through Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in regards to nature. Or excuse me, David. Paul also mentions this in Romans 1, but I'll just read Psalm 19 here for us. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak, and night after night they make him known. I actually love, I appreciated some of the, when we were singing, some of the songs we were singing, and, and the backdrop was just the universe, right? The Milky Way, these galaxies, these stars that are light years, millions of light years away that God spoke into existence. And when you look at that, in fact, I was at a coffee shop uh, earlier this week at Blackbird, uh, yeah, Blackbird there. Whoever the photographer putting up their artwork up there is, it's amazing. Some great photography. One was at the top of Hurricane Ridge and you had the Milky Way. And I'm just like staring at this going, holy smokes. My naked eye cannot really even like connect all that. And God is in control of all of it. Created it. Manifest his glory in it. What a coincidental accident, right? I say that tongue-in-cheek. No, God is screaming and declaring. He's saying, look at how great I am. Just look at creation. Just a little taste of what is to come. But we also see that God reveals himself through his word. What does Peter tell us in 2 Peter 1? Knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture come from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but, by men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The point is this, that God reveals himself. We talked about this a few weeks ago, so you can go back to that sermon. But God reveals himself through his word, and we have everything to gain by it. But thirdly, we see that God reveals himself through Jesus. Hebrews begins with these opening words, the book of Hebrews. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to his son as an inheritance, and through his son, he created the universe. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and He sustains everything by the mighty power of His command. When He had cleansed us from all our sins, He sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. The point is this. If you want to know who God is, if you want to have a a, a proper image of God, look no further than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. That's what Paul tells us in Colossians, uh, Colossians chapter uh, 1. The invisible image, or he's the visible image of the invisible God. So the question I think that we need to grapple with as brothers and sisters in Christ is this. What must you and I do to see and understand the real God 
as he really is. What, what, what is our response? And I believe succinctly, bluntly, plainly it is this. You and I must seek him with a big exclamation mark. We must seek him diligently. You guys love, and I say you guys, I, it's not that I don't. But there's a passage of scripture. You know, do you ever have those passages of scripture that you're like, it's scripture, it's divine, it's inspired, it's good, but oftentimes is taken out of context. Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of those passages for me. I kind of get kind of like triggered by it. Let me just read it to you. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. Oh, we love that, don't we? Yes, God has plans for me, a future and a hope. It's true. I'm not, I'm not trying to put that down. But we sometimes don't read farther. Verse 13, if you will look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Yes, God has a plan and a hope and a future for you, but his invitation is that you would seek him wholeheartedly. This doesn't mean a kind of a casual, passive, yeah, I'll give it a, I'll give it a, a, a shot, I'll give it a try. No, this is God saying, you need to be all in on this. I was just talking to Jeff Scott this morning. We were talking about... Uh, Lake Crescent. Lake Crescent is a lake, and I don't have to convince you of this, but Lake Crescent is a lake that you have to be all in when you get in. You have to jump off the dock. You can't tiptoe your way out. You'll never go out. After your ankles are done, you're like, you're back, you're done. The only way to go into Lake Crescent is go to the punch bowl or jump off the dock. That's it. And I think God in a similar way is going, hey, don't, don't seek me casually. Don't seek me kind of like, well, let me, I'll put my toes in the water a little bit and see what I think, you know. Now God says, be all in. Seek me wholeheartedly with everything you got. And this, that's what our, our Proverbs passage that Chris Phobian read for us is about. Let me just read it one more time and I promise I'm almost done here. My child, listen to those words. I love that. My child. Listen to what I say and treasure my commands. Tune your ears to wisdom and concentrate on understanding. Cry out for insight and ask for understanding. Search for them as you would for silver. Seek them like hidden treasures. Then you will understand what it means to fear the Lord and you will gain knowledge of God. If you really want to know God, Solomon tells us here in this proverb, first we must seek God through his word. God reveals himself through his divine revelation to us. We call it the Bible. And if I could just say it in this way, there is no such thing as a godly man or a godly woman who isn't regularly pursuing God through the scriptures. We know God by what he's revealed to us through his word. 
But we also, we must seek God by being teachable. We must be teachable. This is really difficult if you've grown up in the church and, you, and you've you know, been on this journey of faith for many decades. Because for many, a many number of us, we can be going, you know, I got, I got God figured out. And some of our theological boxes are so hermetically sealed that we're not willing for God to go and tap, tap, tap. You're a little off. What you thought to be so true may not be as true as you think it is. Or it, it may be true in part, but there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to grow. I have, I have more to show you. In other words, let's let those boxes open. Not because they aren't truthful, but God wants to fill it with a greater understanding and clarity. So we need to be teachable in our pursuit of God. But thirdly, we need to seek God through passionate prayer. I love how, the, how this proverb cries, as says, cry out for insight and ask for understanding. You know, so often, do you realize, brothers and sisters, that God wants you to know him? God wants you to know and understand him. He does not want to withhold. He wants to disclose. He wants to reveal himself. He is a revealing God. But it takes a wholehearted attempt, a wholehearted effort, and that is through prayer we cry out, Lord, reveal yourself. If we do this, we will discover the knowledge of God, and we will begin to see God as he really is. So let me just ask you a couple questions here as a way of uh, self-evaluation, and I say this in closing. Let me ask it in this way. Let me ask you a question. What do you think the evidence is of a life that is truly seeking after God? What is the litmus test? What, what, what are the markers? What are the evidences of, of someone who is truly seeking after God? In my reading, uh, one of the books I'm reading, uh, which is a classic, and I hi- highly encourage it, it's called Knowing God, so it's a pretty appropriate title, uh, by J.I. Packer. He says this in his book, Knowing God. He says, those who really know God have great energy for God. They have great thoughts about God. They have a great boldness for God. And they have great contentment in God. Would you say these descriptions are true of you? That's right. Are you a person who has great energy for God, zealous for the truth, eager to tell people that have yet to understand that there's a God who loves them? Do you have, are you a person who has great thoughts about God? It kind of begs the question, what do you do in your idle time when you have nothing else to think about? Maybe when the kids are in bed, if you still have kids in the house. Is it pulling out your phone and flipping through YouTube? It is for me sometimes, to be honest. But do you have great thoughts for God? Just being wrapped up 
and how great and awesome he is? Are you a person that has a great boldness for God because you know you're God? Do you have great contentment in God? What I love about that word contentment is this. When we are discontent, what we are really saying is, God, you have not given me what I think you should have given me. God, you have not provided in the way that you probably should have provided, at least as much as I can tell. And if I had more, then I'd have a reason to be happy. But those who are content in God realize they have received the greatest gift. What does Peter tells us in his first letter? Even if you've lost everything, you have received an incorruptible and unfading eternal gift reserved in heaven. That is your salvation. God has done everything and we receive the greatest gift given to the human race, his son, Jesus Christ. And so we draw focus on the fact that God has not withheld at all. God is not someone who has shortchanged us. He's not someone who has given in part. He's not given us in kind of a, a small degree. No, God has given us everything for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. And he gave us the greatest gift, and that gift was his son, taking on the form of human, clothing himself with humanity, and they're clothing himself with vulnerabilities, the ability to die. That wasn't a cosmic accident. That wasn't a cosmic, cosmic mistake. That was a cosmic plan from the very beginning. That the Father would send his Son to be the Savior of the world. And he's done everything. And then he says, come, all who are weary and full of burden, and I will give you rest. Come, receive the life that I offer you. Not as the world offers, the life that I offer you. Life abundantly, life to the full. This is all made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I, I, I'm so appreciative of the fact that we get to come and draw focus and really center everything on the cross of Jesus. But we're so grateful for the fact that you did not stay dead, Jesus. But you resurrected. You were resurrected to, to life. So you took care of our sin, cancer, and then that through your resurrection, you guaranteed our eternal salvation. And for that, we just say thank you. Forgive us when we make life all about us. Forgive us when we walk out of here and we start just thinking about life in, in absence of you instead of in response to you. We just ask, Jesus, that you would help us, empower us, enable us, and fill us with your spirit, that we might live for you and that we might have great energy and boldness, have great thoughts, 
and great contentment in you. We ask that you would do that by your spirit because we know we are weak, but in you we are strong. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.